Welcome to A Look Ahead. We're delighted you've decided to join us. We study the Sabbath School lessons as prepared by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And this particular series is on the book of Ephesians. That's that little book that's six chapters long, somewhere there in the middle of the New Testament. And this is lesson number five in that series for July 29 of 2023, entitled Horizontal Atonement, The Cross and the Church. Hmm, that sounds interesting. wonder how that'll come out. Well, we'd like to ask you to pray with us as we begin. Our kind and wonderful Father, as we think back and we think of the, look forward as well to the time when we will sit with you around the throne and learn how you inspired the writers to do these various books. And think of Paul writing this book from prison uh, in Rome, waiting at any moment to have his head cut off, uh, and still writing these deep theological and very important messages. Help us to comprehend what's here for us as much as possible is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians 2 is famous among pastors and theologians for its statement about breaking down the barriers between Jews and Gentiles. Jim? From the Bible study guide, you're a Gentile, a Greek, who has learned to treasure the God of the Jews. In fact, you have left your worship of many gods and have embraced the one true God. As many, excuse me, as you make your way through the beautiful courtyards and fluted columns of the Jerusalem temple, the sound of worship call forth your praise. Just then, though you find yourself confronted by a stone barricade four feet high, engraved every feet in Latin and Greek is the message, no foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure of the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. In that moment, you feel shut out, alienated, and separated. This is from the Bible study guide for July 22. Okay, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, that barricade. You can look it up on the internet. If you go to Google and look under images and you ask for the barricades outside of the, the, the you know, the things that around the temple in Jerusalem, the ancient, the New Testament, I should say, temple in Jerusalem, uh, you can look at the thing. Our focus in this lesson will be on the last half of the second chapter of Ephesians. And so here we have, Carrie, you can want to read that for us? Yes, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. You gentlemen by birth... Gentiles? Oh yes, Gentiles, sorry. Uh, by birth called the uncircumcised by the Jews who called themselves the circumcised and in brackets, which refers to what men do to their bodies. Remember what you were in the past. At that time, you were apart from Christ. You were foreigners and you did, no, and did not belong to God's chosen people. You had no part in the covenants which were based on God's promises to his people, and you lived in this world without hope and without God. But now, in union with Christ Jesus, you who used to be far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For Christ himself, 
has brought us peace by making Jews and Gentiles one people. With his own body, he broke down the wall that separated them and kept them enemies. He abolished the Jewish law with its commandments and rules in order to create out of the two races one new people in union with himself, in this way making peace. By his death on the cross, Christ destroyed their enmity. By means of the cross, he united both races into one body and brought them back to God. So Christ came and preached the good news of peace to all, to you Gentiles who were far away from God and to the Jews who were near him. It is through Christ that all of us, Jews and Gentiles, are able to come in the one Spirit in the presence of the Father. Keep going. Uh, go ahead, Dwayne. You can pick up there. So then, you Gentiles are, now, are not foreigners or strangers any longer. You are now fellow citizens with God's people and members of the family of God. You too are built upon the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets, the cornerstone being Jesus Christ himself. He is the one who holds the whole building together and makes it grow into a sacred temple dedicated to the Lord. In union with him, you too are being built together with all the others into a place where God lives through his spirit. Wow, are you looking forward to being a brick in the temple of God? Well, what do these verses mean to us in our situation? Now, we understand something of the situation in ancient Ephesus, and this letter was addressed to them. They ended up being the, the, the circulation center for the Christian churches at that time. And so Paul's letter was sent to them. And the little expression in, in Ephesus there in verse 1 of chapter 1 wasn't in the original because it was Paul's intention for this letter to be copied and distributed to all the churches in that area. This would be today modern, uh, the western end of modern Turkey. So now... Are we looking for it in our day? Are we looking forward to the day when we will be living side by side with people from all nations and all time periods since the days of Adam and Eve? Will we be able to get along with all of them? You know, we have sometimes getting along with our neighbors. We have trouble getting along with them. We have trouble getting along with, you know, people of different races and different ethnic backgrounds and so forth, different languages. I mean, think of all the enmities in the world and yet God is going to somehow pull people from all those places and not just all the people in our day from every generation all the way back to Adam and Eve and he's going to expect us to live together in peace in heaven what are the chances <laughs> it sounds impossible doesn't it yeah. in Ephesians 2 1 through 3 and Ephesians 2 11 and 12 Paul contrasted the situation of the Jews and the Gentiles let's Read those verses real quick. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, In the past, get that up here so everybody can see it. In the past you were spiritually dead because of your disobedience and sins. And he's writing this to whom? We just mentioned it a while back, didn't we? I can't he's, writing, he's writing 
particularly to, right now he's speaking to the Gentiles in Ephesus. At that time you, were, you followed the world's evil way, you obeyed the ruler of the spiritual power in space, the spirit that which, who now controls the people who disobey God. Actually, all of us were like them and lived according to our natural desires, doing whatever suited the wishes of our own bodies and minds. In our natural condition, we, like everyone else, were destined to suffer God's anger, whatever that means. We'll get to that later. And then dropping down to verses 11 and 12, you Gentiles by birth, now he specifically mentions them, called the uncircumcised by the Jews, who called themselves the circumcised, which refers to what men do to their bodies, Remember what you were in the past. At that time, you were apart from Christ. You were foreigners who did not belong to God's chosen people. You had no part in the covenants, which are based on God's promises to his people. And you lived in this world without hope and without God. How's that for a wonderful situation? So, he first admitted, Paul first admitted, that all humans are sinners and are far away from God's plan for humankind. The Jews had been given God's plan while the Gentiles did not even know about it. In some ways, each group despised the other. The, Gentile, the Jews despised the Gentiles for being uncircumcised, while the Gentiles despised the Jews for being circumcised. Paul reminded both Gentiles and Jews who were church members from where they had come. However, Paul proceeded almost immediately to describe the, situa- the solution. Through Christ, both groups were to be brought together. How does that work? How does the death of Jesus bring both Jews and Gentiles, which includes most of us, nearer to God? We learned the ultimate about God's character. Mm-hmm. And, well, we learn we learned the, the ultimate results of sin, don't we? We learn the result of, I mean, basically, to put it in very simple terms, we have the choice of living a life something like the life which Jesus lived and end up live on living forever, or we will die the way he died, uh, separated from God. Uh, so choose his life or choose his death. That's what our choices are. Does the fact that the rift between Jews and Gentiles can be resolved by both groups becoming Christians apply to other kinds of rifts that might exist today? Does becoming a Christian Resolve all rifts. Yeah. Have you about some new ones and, and aggravate the ones that are there? Well, I mean, you know, while I agree with that theory, which is it's more than a theory; it's actual fact. If you're real Christians, but what do we read in Revelation 13 and 14? Who's the enemy going to? What? What? Who's Satan going to be using in the end? One Christian group against other Christian groups, right? Yeah. Wow. So as, can, as, so as individuals, from where have we come? W- what did Jesus redeem you of or from? From time to time, is it, is it important to look back to see where we have come from? Well, history is important, isn't it? Why is it important? If you don't know about history, you... Bound to relive it. Never Bound to relive it, make the same mistakes over again. Do those questions apply only to those who had recently become Christians? Or even Seventh-day Adventists? Or do those who grew up in Seventh-day Adventist homes need to ask themselves the same questions? 
Do we ever use the term outsider or insider? I've heard it. <laughs> You've heard it once or twice? Yeah. What do those terms mean? Well, it's us versus them, right? Okay. Well, it's not doesn't imply a state of harmony, does it? No. A state of atonement. No. It, unfortunately, the, the way if we this word at, atonement is mm-hmm. generally doesn't have the five hyphens in it, so it doesn't re- properly explain it. It, it, it. Right, shortly after Tyndale uh, coined this this phrase, which means at one at onement means to to be in harmony. Mm-hmm. They. Took that thing and made it a, a payment as mm-hmm. a, as a, uh, a to atone, which is all purely made up. It, it's uh, very deceptive and misleading. Well, look at a couple of verses, Ephesians one seven and eight. For the blood of Christ, we are by the blood of Christ we are set free. That is, our sins are forgiven. Well, we need to talk more about that a little bit later. How great is the grace of God which he gave to us in such large measure in all his wisdom and insight. Wow. And try, let's try chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. But now in union with Christ Jesus, you who used to be far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought us peace by making Jews and Gentiles one people. With his own body he broke down that, the wall that separated them and kept them enemies. Now, Jim has already told us about a wall that was surrounding the temple in Jerusalem. That's probably what Paul had in mind, but are there any other walls like that? Yeah, back, uh, we're talking 35 years ago there or more, when I studied with a rabbi in, in, uh, out in Burbank, California, and uh, he held up a, uh, a copy of the Mishnah, which is about the size of a Bible, or most mm-hmm. Bibles. <clears throat> and that was the, the excuse me, the uh, wall of a separation between uh, God and, and his and his people, or and the other yeah. persuasions. Yeah, if you it, think you have to follow a mission, why that makes oh, you it, it, separate from everybody else? That's what are they six hundred and thirteen sure. different uh, rules? Yes, that's just for the Sabbath. Yeah. Paul began by stating that the blood of Christ sets us free. That is, our sins are forgiven. Okay, would someone like to explain that in a couple of sentences? What does it mean to say that by the blood of Christ or the cross our sins are forgiven? Did God the Father refuse to forgive sins until Jesus had been crucified? What is the effect of the crucifixion forgiveness of our sins in the 21st century? Okay, let's think about that. Okay, does that mean our sins were forgiven a long time before they were committed? I mean, I'm living in the 21st century, and I commit a sin, and that, what happens? It travels back a couple thousand years and gets forgiven on the cross? The cross is not for forgiveness. Well, you're going to have to explain to some. You know, that's what a lot of people think. Everybody is. All intelligent creatures are forgiven. Mm -hmm. The question is, are they, is their mind changed is their thinking changed to become and learn everything they can about Christ and and uh, his teachings? That's okay. that's what it's all about. It's a change of, of mindset. Well, 
And so we go on reading, to many Christians, the death of Jesus was necessary to pay the price for sin. Did Jesus somehow pay the price to assuage the Father's wrath because we had turned away from his plan for our lives by sinning? No. Would it be correct to say that Jesus Christ understands us better after having grown up and lived that life here on earth? If we say that, we are saying that God the Father is not omniscient or all-knowing. Okay, Carrie, you want to take on that next very interesting paragraph? Yes. From the writings of Ellen G. White, had God the Father come to our world and dwelt among us, failing his glory and humbling himself, that humanity might look upon him, the history that we have of the life of Christ would not have been changed. In every act of Jesus, in every lesson of his instruction, we are to see and hear and recognize God. Inside, in hearing, in effect, it is the voice and movements of the Father. And that's from E.G. White, letter 83, 1895. Mm-hmm. And most of it can be found in That I May Know Him, page 338. So what does that tell us? We know, and this is, this is hard to wrap our minds around, but we know that Jesus, every night, sometimes all night long, would talk with his Father and, and pray to his Father. And they planned out every single day of his life. He knew what was coming in advance. Is that possible for us? That word that is translated in, in uh, Ephesians uh, 1, verse 7, about forgiveness... Mm-hmm. Another word is remission. Mm-hmm. It's for remission of sin rather than forgiveness. Remission has to do with healing, mm-hmm. right? Okay. And? If if we have a disease, if we have a disease, we go to the doctor. Remember, doctor, doctor, I got lung cancer, and the doctor says, "I forgive you." Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> we want the doctor to have some re- remedy or yeah. therapy to to heal us yeah. from from our uh, malady. But we put it all into forgiveness. Well, you're all paid up, and Jesus died to pay, and, and praise the Lord, and you go on and keep on doing what you've always been doing. Haven't expanded your understanding of the Creator. In the New Testament, we see much evidence about the differences between Jews and Gentiles. But how long did those differences persist, and to what groups do they apply now? Was the barrier between Jews and Greeks a big deal to the people living in Ephesus and the surrounding territories? Why is Paul writing about the differences between Jews and Gentiles? Well, it turns out that, and there's not nothing about this mentioned in our, uh, in our Bible study guide, but there were a lot of Jews living in that area because it was a big business area. And it had recently been a major, major uh, center for business of various kinds um, until the king that had been there, died, and he handed over the control of his kingdom when he died to the Roman Empire. And so it sort of faded in importance at that point. But there were a lot of Jews in that area. Paul also talked about the differences between Greeks and barbarians. Was that a problem? What's a barbarian? Anybody know what a barbarian is? Anybody who doesn't speak Greek. To the Greeks, a barbarian was any any other language. Just sound like people going bar 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 bar. <laughs> <laughs> I remember you doing that. 
many times in the past. That's that's where the word barbarian came from. What about the differences between Christians and non-Christians? When reading this letter, does it sound to you like the differences between Jews and Gentiles were a problem mainly within the churches in Asia Minor and Greece? Were the Jewish believers hesitant to associate with the former pagan, formerly pagan believers? Um, if you want to read that whole story in detail, read Acts 15 and then Romans 14 and then 1 Corinthians 8 and 10. And you'll get a very interesting understanding of how the church, the church was working back in those days. So, Dwayne, could you pick up that one next one there? From the Bible study guide. In the context of our passage for this week, Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, the cross yields three great assets for believers. Gentiles, who were far from God and his people, are brought near, in Ephesians 2, 13, they're brought near to both. As to God and to his people. Mm-hmm. Okay. Being now sons and daughters of God and brothers and sisters of Jewish believers. The number two? The hostility uh, between Jewish and Gentile believers is itself put to death. Ephesians 2.16 The cross of Christ removes what seemed to be the permanent state of hostility and war in which Jews and Gentiles were sworn enemies. Ephesians 2.17 And number Three. three, in the place of hostility comes reconciliation. It was Christ's purpose to reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. Ephesians 2.16 Okay, and comparing Colossians 1.19-22, that's from our Bible study guide for Monday. Will the reconciliation brought about by the cross make it possible for the people of all nations and all ages to live together in peace in the world made new? I want us, I want us to keep thinking about that question. How does it accomplish that peace? And what do we mean by reconciliation? Well, our Bible study guide suggests this. What does reconciliation look like? How does it feel to be reconciled? Imagine severe estrangement between a mother and daughter, one that has settled in over a period of years. Imagine this rancor being dissolved in a wave of grace and forgiveness and the ensuing reunion between the two. That is reconciliation. Reconciliation is experienced in the moment when one church member lays aside whatever issue divides from another and acknowledges the other church member as a beloved brother or sister who accepts what has been offered. Reconciliation is not a mechanical or legal term, but an interpersonal one that celebrates the mending of broken relationships. Paul dares to imagine Christ's powerful work on the cross as impacting the relationships between not just individuals but also people groups. He imagines it invading our lives and destroying our divisions, dissolving our quarrels and renewing our fellowship with and understanding of each other. From our Bible study guide for Monday, July 24. To say that, use the term reconciliation implies that in the past there, there was a state of conciliation, mm-hmm. and which is really not true, for, mm-hmm. unless you would go clear back to Adam and Eve pr- yeah. prior to that. Sure. So it was a, it, it's been a long, 
dry wasteland that, that, that's going. So to to make to bring into a state of harmony or a state of atonement, it would probably be better description than to say reconcile because it, it it's the wrong implication to say that. <laughs> How can you re- rec- be reconciled if you were never in a state of conciliation? Well, another explanation might sound like this. If we all recognize that we are totally helpless in trying to earn our salvation, but also recognize that God has offered salvation to everyone on the same conditions, shouldn't we be thankful and willing to accept others? And this condition would be listen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> listen. Well, listen and and and, uh, and allow yourself to be changed by what you hear. Of course. Well, Ephesians two fourteen and fifteen. Let's look at that again. You, for Christ Himself, has brought us peace by making Jews and Gentiles one people. With His own body, He broke down the wall that separated them and kept them enemies. He abolished the Jewish law with its commandments and rules and in order to create out of the two races one new people and union with himself, in this way, making peace. So by that was what Paul wrote. Paul talked about tearing down the middle wall of the enclosure. What was he talking about? Jim, you get to talk about that again. Paul probably alludes to the balustrade or fence that surrounded the court of the, excuse me, the court of Herod. Court of Israel in Herod's temple with this death threat. Paul imagines that while coming down and while coming down and Gentiles, this wall coming down. Paul imagines this wall coming down and Gentiles being fully uh, granted full access to worship God. That is Ephesians two eighteen. Any such walls, says Paul, is removed by the cross. For there we learn that these two pre- peoples. Jews and Gentiles are really one from the Bible study guide. Yeah, and there's if you get our web, get our our uh, handout from our website, you can click on the link there and you can see a picture of the sign and you can read it in Greek if you're good enough. Mm-hmm. Ephesians two fourteen and fifteen are, are, and a parallel passage in Colossians have been misinterpreted frequently by Christians. Carrie. Some believe that Ephesians 2:14 and 15 teaches that the Ten Commandments, inclusive of the Sabbath commandment, are abolished or set aside by the cross. However, in Ephesians, Paul demonstrates profound respect for the Ten Commandments as a resource for shaping Christian discipleship. He quotes the Fifth Commandment, Ephesians 6, 2, and 3, and alludes to others, e.g. the 7th, Ephesians 5, 3 through 14, 21 through 33, the 8th, Ephesians 4, 28, the 9th, Ephesians 4, 25, the 10th, Ephesians 5, 5, rather. This aligns with Paul's earlier assertions about the law in Romans 3, 31 and Romans 7, 12. He addresses the misuse of the law, but he honors the law itself and assumes its continuity. Hence, to use these verses to abolish the Ten Commandments, especially in light of all the other verses in the Bible about the perpetuity of the law, is clearly a misinterpretation of Paul's intent here. Yeah. 
That's from our Bible study guide for Tuesday. And that word that is translated as commandments comes the Greek word entole, right? Which it, is, I, I would have to check, but it's probably entole. And, which is a prescription, a principle, rather than a command. God does not command. But people like to have think that like to think that he does, but he doesn't. The scriptural references in this paragraph show clearly that Paul many times supported the essential nature of the Mosaic law or God's commandments. That that's how things are supposed to work. That's so, right. It's a principle, it's a prescription for how to live. So and what is that wall that Paul wanted to tear down? Dwayne, I guess that's yours again. The law in Ephesians 2, 14 and 15 is either the ceremonial aspects of the law that divided Jew from Gentile, represented in Paul's complex phrase, the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So it is either that, or it is the whole Old Testament system of law as it had come to be interpreted, augmented and misused as a wedge to distance Jews from Gentiles. Okay. Are there differences that are causing barriers between Seventh-day Adventists and other Christian groups today? Oh, yeah. How can we break down those barriers? We have a, one of the members of our group here that's not with us this, today is on the other side of the world giving talks to large public groups the Rotary and other Muslim groups and so forth like this. And he does that very easily and they appreciate and want him to come back. Is that one way of breaking down barriers? Yes. Would be. Certainly. Just before Jesus comes back, will there be animosity between different Christian denominations or groups when the issue of Sabbath versus Sunday becomes critical? Could be. So, Ephesians 2, 17 and 18, again, what do you, how do you understand this? So, Christ came and preached the good news of peace to all, to you Gentiles who are far away from God and to the Jews who are near to him. It is through Christ that all of us, Jews and Gentiles, are able to come in the one spirit into the presence of the Father. From the Good News Bible. If God cannot be successful in creating an environment of long-term peace in heaven and on the new earth, will the great controversy just start all over again? I don't think God will let it happen. How can he, how can he prevent it? I don't know. That's the question. How can he prevent how can it? He, well, yeah, there, if there is love, if God is love, and without freedom you don't have love, what is going to prevent a problem arising in the in the hereafter? The, fr- the fruit of the spirit, the last of the fruit of the spirit is self-control. Self-control, and if everybody is act- exercising self-control, will be safe. nobody else is c- controlling you. You're self exercising self-control. You can't sin. Jesus talked a lot about peace. Such peace is not only the absence of conflict, but also includes the Hebrew concept of shalom. This includes the experience of wholeness and well-being, both in our relationship to God and our relationship to others. 
especially fellow church members. And Paul talks quite a lot about this, and you, you sort of wonder why he says as much as he does about how we relate to the brethren. Now, we have, um, we, in modern times, we've tended to call, when, when someone mentions the brethren, what do you think of? SDAs. <laughs> okay, but any particular group of SDAs? We often think when we say the brethren, we're thinking about the church leadership, aren't we? Hierarchy. The hierarchy. Okay. Well, Ephesians 1, 2 says, May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. And the word for grace in Greek is charis, and the word for peace in Hebrew is shalom. But both those those are the typical greetings. So Paul is saying, I greet you Greeks and I greet you Hebrews. Grace and peace. That's a double greeting there. Ephesians 6.23. Jim, you want to grab that one? May God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, give us to all all Christian brothers and sisters peace and love with faith. From the Good News Bible, remember that the usual greeting in Hebrew is shalom, which means peace. Well, and it's not too far uh, from uh, Islam. Mm-hmm. Isn't that, isn't that it means yeah. a, a, a religion of peace. They call it a religion yeah. of peace. Unfortunately, we have a hard time seeing those things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Salam, they would say. Yeah. Comparison of Ephesians 2, 14 to 16 and Romans 5 makes it clear that Christ brought us peace. An example of how Jesus preached peace is found in... Carrie? The Gospels contain examples of Jesus as a preacher of peace. In his farewell messages to the disciples, he promises them and us, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. From John fourteen twenty-seven. You, uh, what's the... Uh, New King James King, Version? New King James Version, yeah. And he concludes, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's from John 16.33. After his resurrection, when he appears to the disciples, he repeatedly says to them, Peace be with you. John 20.19.21.26. Yeah, again and again. That's our Bible study guide for Wednesday. Ephesians 2.17-19, moving down our page a little bit and make it clear excuse me make it clear that Christ intends for his peace to be a part of the message of the Christian church for all time so if the basic premise of if if you could ask people what is the single thing that the Christian church stands for it would be love right probably love the thing that at least the Christian church is supposed to stand for well if you have love don't you automatically have peace you should have, right? Yeah. So why was the why was circumcision such a big deal in Paul's day in places like Ephesus? The pagans exercised naked in the gymnasium. In fact, the first Olympics were all conducted in the nude. So circumcision was obvious to all who attended or participated. And I will tell you that there is evidence that some of the Jews down in Egypt who there was a huge number of Jews down in Egypt, and some of whom became Christians, 
but they wanted to integrate into society, they literally tried to figure out how to uncircumcise themselves so they wouldn't be obviously different in the gymnasium. Think about how you would uncircumcise yourself. But clearly, circumcision was obvious to all who attended or participated. Are we preachers of peace? Or do we establish barriers that keep other people out? Paul used several different metaphors to describe the Christian church. Where are we there? Dwayne, I think that's yours. Reviewing Ephesians 2, we recall that verses 1 to 10 teach that we live in solidarity with Jesus, while verses 11 to 22 teach that we live in solidarity with others as part of his church. Jesus' death has both vertical benefits in establishing our relationship with God in Ephesians 2, 1-10, and horizontal benefits in cementing our relationship with others. See Ephesians 2, 11-22. Through the cross, Jesus demolishes all that divides Gentile believers from Jewish believers, including the misuse of the law in order to widen the gulf. From Ephesians 2, 11-18. Jesus also builds something an amazing new temple composed of believers. Gentiles, once excluded from worship in the sacred places of the temple, now join Jewish believers in becoming a new temple. It is a Christian temple, not a Jewish temple or a pagan temple like the one they celebrated in Ephesus. We all become part of God's church, a holy temple in the Lord. From Ephesians 2, 19-22 and are privileged to live in solidarity with Jesus and our brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, that's from our Bible study guide for Thursday. So, having looked now at Ephesians, most of the chapter, in these verses, Paul made it very clear that it is by God's grace that we have been saved through faith. It is not the result of our own efforts. It is God's gift so that no one can boast about it. He concludes... By saying, as we read again, Ephesians 2, 19-22, So then, you Gentiles are not foreigners or strangers any longer. You are now fellow citizens with God's people and members of the family of God. You too are built upon the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets, the cornerstone being Christ Jesus himself. He is the one who holds the whole building together and makes it grow into a sacred temple dedicated to the Lord. And union with him, you too are being built together with all the others into a place where God lives through his spirit from the Good News Bible. So, what, what, what does it mean in practical terms to, to say that we are built as part of a temple? What does that mean? We just sit there like a bump on a log or like a brick in a church or we're supposed to be active we should be active. learning and studying and and sharing mm-hmm. yeah. remember yeah go ahead I was say, in some ways you've got to be active just look at places like New Guinea mm-hmm. how it was before and after uh, World War One and Two and all that and in, in other places up mm-hmm. there now We've got some so educated they're in charge of things in their home places. 
You remember that Paul grew up and was trained as a Pharisee. When you say Pharisee, what does that mean to you? I love myself, I think I'm grand. I sit and hold my hand, that was them. Yeah. A Pharisee loved nothing more than to boast of his righteousness. Imagine how much Paul's thinking had changed. I mean, here's someone who, you know, when, when he was a child, I don't know what his family did in Tarsus because they were living among a bunch of Gentiles. But there must have been Jews there that they associated with. But anyway, I mean, so he goes to Jerusalem, he gets an education in Jerusalem, and he's being taught just continuously, okay, we don't have anything to do with, we don't even, we have a hard time associating with other Jews, not let alone Gentiles. And now look what Paul's writing in this book. Jesus referred to them and the scribes as, as hypocrites. Yeah. Okay. Um, in 1 Corinthians 3, 9-17, which we don't have time to read right now, and 2 Corinthians 6, 14-71, and 1 Peter 2, 4-8, these passages make it very clear that Peter and Paul spoke of Jesus Christ as the one and only foundation. In fact, no other foundation can be laid, and Jews and Gentiles alike are building blocks in that Christian temple. We need to notice that this talk of reconciliation did not apply to accepting pagans and pagan ways into the church. And there's plenty of evidence that Paul says, you know, be not unequally yoked with unbelievers and so forth in 2 Corinthians 6. Can Christians and the devil agree? Can pagan ideas ever become a part of God's temple? I think you know the answer to that out there. Paul understood very well what was going on in Ephesus. Just about every evil that one can imagine was carried on in the temple of Artemis slash Diana. Any criminal who managed to reach the temple was protected from the law because it was believed that whatever happened in the temple would be approved by the gods, especially by Artemis. So imagine if you've got a a temple with a huge... I mean, there were hundreds literally hundreds of pillars. This thing was is four times as large as the Parthenon in Athens, this temple. Four times as large. And obviously little rooms out there and there's fertility cult practices going on and criminals, anybody who has, could escape would be there and, and so long as they stayed in the temple, nobody could do anything. I mean, what kind of a place would that end up being? Paul was talking about a very different kind of temple, a temple that is growing and is living. For example, Jim? 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 8. Come to the Lord, the living stone rejected by people as worthless, but chosen by God as valuable. Come as living stones and let yourselves be used in building the spiritual temple where you will serve as holy priests to offer spiritual and acceptable sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. For the scripture, Isaiah 28:16 in Greek says, I chose, excuse me, I chose a valuable stone which I am placing as the cornerstone in Zion, and whoever believes in him will never be disappointed. This stone is of great value for you that believe 
But for those who do not believe, the stone which the builders rejected is worth as worthless turned out to be the most important of all. And another scripture, Isaiah eight fourteen says, This is the stone that will make people stumble, the rock that will make them fall. They stumbled because they did not believe in the word which was God's will for them. Good news, Bible. Okay. Notice that Paul did not make any claims to being the rock or stone on which the church is built. Now, why is that a question? Do some people think that the church is built on Peter? Upon this rock. Matthew 16, when Jesus and Peter were having that discussion, Jesus said, upon this rock, and of course, if we had the, if we had the, a video of it, I'm sure he would probably pointing to himself when he said that. Upon this rock, you know, the church was, would be built. Paul concluded by stating that where, whereas once Gentiles were kept out of the inner portion of the court of Israel at the temple in Jerusalem, they were to become building materials for a new temple. Thus we notice that the new Christian church is very different place from the temple of Artemis, Diana, and even from Herod's temple in Jerusalem. God wants to build a living church, otherwise called a living temple. He wants to build a temple of living stones and living sacrifices, if you remember Romans 12, 1 to 2. He says, come and offer yourselves as living sacrifices. Well, in Ephesians 1, 7 to 9, I'm sorry we don't have time to read each of these passages, and in Ephesians 3, 7 to 9, we see that Paul's vision for a reconciled church was much larger than just Jews and Gentiles. Who else did he want to include? Gentiles. Well, he believed that the day must come when all of God's faithful people from this earth, plus all the beings in the rest of the universe, will live together in the kingdom of God. This might seem difficult for some people to understand. Peter recognized that. Carrie? Okay. First Peter one twelve, God revealed to these prophets that their work was not for their own benefit, but for yours, as they spoke about those things which you have now heard from the messengers who announced the good news by the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. These are things which even the angels would like to understand. That's from the Good News Bible. Okay, these are things which even the angels would like to understand. What is it that the angels... I mean, the angels live in the very presence of God, so what is it that they can't understand? No idea? Well, it was... What does it say? Ephesians 1, 9, 10, 3, 9, and 10. It wasn't until the cross that they... And Colossians 1, 19, and 20 mm-hmm. that they understood now that Jesus' message has the ring of truth. Yeah, and they, for the first time... Saw, feast of the beans in the heavenly places. Remember yeah. what the text says? For the first time, they, they were able to see how God deals with sinners. He lets you do what you bloody well have made up your mind to do. It is possible that the reconciliation taking place between peoples on this earth within the Christian church could be an example to teach lessons to the onlooking universe. Was there ever a time when there was any conflict up there? That's where conflict started, wasn't it? Revelation 12. 
Consider some other biblical principles such as ethnic relationships. Do we have any problems with any ethnic relationships in our day? Quite often. Yeah. Go out and check, watch what happens between the gangs down in Los Angeles. Yeah. Well, none of us, none of us can make any claims to righteousness except that righteousness which comes by a faith relationship with Jesus Christ. So we must recognize that we will all be on equal ground in the kingdom to come. If we cannot resolve our differences now between two races or groups that live in the same country and speak the same language, how will we get along with people in heaven from every race, tribe, nation, and time period? I have sometimes suggested that that's why God wants us men to marry women and women to marry men because we need to learn to learn we need to learn how to get along with someone who doesn't think like us <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's quite an astute yeah. assessment there Ken yeah. <laughs> I think I have to remember that one <laughs> well it's true I'm not arguing with you you don't see any <laughs> are there simmering differences between different groups in your church or organization oh yes at times okay where are we Dwayne, I think that's yours. In Ephesians 2, 1-10, Paul paints an incredibly beautiful and uplifting picture of how God operates in the salvation of an individual person. Being saved means being called by the Messiah, being resurrected with the Messiah, ascending with the Messiah, and being exalted with the Messiah. But this description was usually applied to the Jews who were eagerly waiting for for their Messiah's Savior. In the Jewish interpretation, when the Messiah would come, he was expected to save and exalt the Jews and destroy and humiliate the Gentiles. However, Paul takes the exalting language used for describing the salvation of the Jews and applies it to the Gentiles. (laughs) Wow. I mean, you know, this, this Pharisee, what happened to him? I mean, I wish that we could have at least a synopsis of what happened to Paul from the time there on the Damascus Road until he showed up back in Jerusalem. Just, you know, it must have been just amazing. But it was how many years? Well, maybe three years, we think. Yeah. It was some pretty intense... Yeah, but fortunately, he had a, he had a background or a, yeah. a, a fa- Probably, foundation of a lot of information, but he got to learn how to sort it out. Yeah, he almost certainly had memorized the Old Testament in Hebrew. So if you think about it, then his his life changing mission was about as long as the disciples. Mm-hmm. Okay, we have touched on three major themes as quoted from the Bible in our from the Bible study guide. Look at these. One, Christ Jesus saves both the Jews and the Gentiles equally, although God first called the Jews to the mission of proclaiming a salvation to the world. So the Jews were called first, but they didn't do their job, so now God calls everybody, right? And again, let's use the word healing where yeah. it says salvation. Yeah, because it's more descriptive. That's why. And then, it, then you have healing has to do with remission of sin rather than forgiveness. 
Yeah. It's, it's, uh, the salvation or healing offered by, to all by the Lord Jesus is universal because he died on the cross, thus making provision of salvation for everyone who believes in him. John 3.16 And thus the partitioning wall between the Jews and the Gentiles became irrelevant. And three, Jesus Christ not only destroyed the wall between the Jews and the Gentiles, but he also built a new reality, a new temple of God, the church wherein both the Jews and the Gentiles equally and together constitute the church from our Bible study guide, page 65. As we mentioned briefly earlier, Jim? Some Christians mistakenly understand it. In Ephesians 2, 16, Paul envisions peace between the Jews and the Gentiles by abolishing the Mosaic law. Consequently, these Christians see the Old Testament and the law as irrelevant to Christianity. However, this view is not only a misunderstanding of Paul's theology, but also a conclusion contrary to what Paul wrote. Two major observations are crucial to underline here. First, the immediate context of Ephesians 2.16 does not excuse me, does indeed point to the idea that the Gentiles who wanted to join God's people were met with a wall that prevented them from doing so. So now, have you ever wondered how many Gentiles were out there in the courtyard trying to work their way into the temple? You know? Okay, go ahead. This wall of separation was a tragedy because God had called Israel to his grace and given them the mission of proclaiming to proclaim his grace to the world. However, the Israelites confused their call to experience holiness and conferred by grace with isolation and elitism. Thus, they failed to deliver on God's mission for them. Some tend to identify the problem of the enmity described here as generated solely by the Jews to keep the Gentiles from accessing God. The major implication of this view is that the problem would be solved by Jesus simply abolishing the Jewish law and establishing a new religion. No doubt there was a lot of enmity displayed by the Jews toward the Gentiles. However, the Old Testament also witnesses to the enmity of peoples of the ancient world manifested against Israel and Judah. And you can read, let me interrupt for a moment, you can read even from the New, even from the Old Testament. They were constantly at war. I mean, you know, what kind of wonderful fellowship is that? It's like just a bunch of gangsters and robbing and stealing from each other. And, uh-huh. and then you, not a whole lot different than the way the world is today, is it? Okay, we're, we've only got a little bit of time left. Go ahead. Paul, however, does not engage here in a project of a traditional international reconciliation of two people groups based on the identification of common ground or compromise on both sides and the political decision of mutual toleration. Yes, Paul does say that both the Jews and the Gentiles are at fault, but he does not say that the main problem of these two people groups consists simply in their mutual animosity or in the lack of finding a way of cohabitation in the world. In the very context of Ephesians 2.14, Paul tells the Christians in Ephesus... Gentile Christians in Ephesus. Paul tells the Gentile Christians in Ephesus that they had been, quotes, dead in sins. 
not because of the Jews, but because of succumbing to their own sinful nature and to Satan, and because they were arrogant and thought they knew better how to save themselves. So how did these animosities between Jews and Gentiles get started? Carrie? The problem of the Jews, on the other hand, did not consist of the pressure of the attacks suffered at the hands of the Gentiles. God had promised them his protection if they fully trust him, trusted him rather. Nor did the problem lie in the fact that the promises, the covenants, and the laws and the ordinances of God were given to the Jews and not to the Gentiles. Although the Jews did not become the enemies of the Gentiles because God instructed them to become so. <laughs> Obviously. The problem of the animosity between Jews and Gentiles consisted of something else. Paul insists that the main problem of the mutual animosity was that both gr groups equally sinned and rebelled against God. And that's from Romans 3, 9 through 19. While the Gentile path to salvation was always by works, or so they thought, the Jews received the revelation of God's salvation by grace. However, by the time of Jesus, the difference between the Jews and the Gentiles was no longer grace, Jews, versus works, Gentiles. Rather, now they were quarreling over whose works would attain salvation. And we're going to need to wind it down right there. As we're running out of time. So, let's pray. Our kind and wonderful Father, we thank you for the privilege we have of studying these words and trying to understand, trying to read between the lines even, to see your hand in the writings of Paul. We thank you for what we have here and what we can learn from it. We thank you all in the name of Jesus. Amen.